Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about cancel culture and also why it's good to assume you are wrong. And then we're joined by Carrie Lattisor, community pastor of Community Christian Church. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. It is a snowy Tuesday afternoon. I can look out my window now. It is still snowing. Ian, this amount of snow puts a smile on your face, makes you grumpy because you got a shovel, a little bit of both. How are you doing today? Oh, it does not make me grumpy. No, sir. I actually don't. I don't mind shoveling. Like it's, I don't get either. a little cardio, you get to breathe some real air. I'm normally trapped in a basement. It is a little wonky with my knee surgery and pain meds. So you take like knee surgery, pain meds, ice, physical activity, and other neighbors out to watch it. And you have a real recipe for disaster, Brian. <laughs> I, I should be driving to your house right now. Uh, when the show is over, it. I'd like to see I'll, this. I'll film the whole thing for you. It's, it's bad. It'll be good. Our, we People who listen to the show know this. We have two dogs. One of them, though, is a puppy. It's a golden doodle. And so we got her in July. So she's never really seen real snow. Like never, And she was just the most joyful creature today to watch her I believe it. just digging and running and just, oh, you're like, okay, now now I really am enjoying this snow. So mm-hmm. uh, it it is good. We're glad to be together here. Coming up in a little bit, we're going to be joined by the community pastor at Community Christian Church, Carrie Latticer. She's also the founder of the New Ground Network. But before we do that, I uh, wanted to touch on three separate articles. We could jump into any one of these, Ian, but you and I have talked multiple times about cancel culture uh, and that that's you don't go a day on Twitter without reading about somebody being canceled or some concept of canceling. And, and so I, ca- I found these three separate articles that are very specific. They're more about now that uh, President Trump is no longer president, uh, how a lot of the people who were his biggest supporters or people who uh, were with him are kind of getting uh, are in the crosshairs of cancel culture. And you might say, well, it's totally um, they should be because of everything that happened at the Capitol or whatever else. But uh, a lot of different questions going on that at the beginning of it is President Trump himself. Uh, and I wanted to read this from Vox. It was talking about President Trump no longer being on Twitter and being, quote unquote, deplatformed. And they did say this. One flip side to all of this is this. While deplatforming can reduce Trump's overall reach, it could certainly make his remaining followers more ardent. Watching the most powerful technology companies in the world act at the same time, if not in unison against Donald Trump, has for his followers likely bolstered his claim that tech companies were working against him and his followers. We have another one here from Harvard University and also from the CEO of MyPillow. Uh, but, Ian, with all of that as background, are you nah, you're never surprised by this? But I'll ask anyway. Are you surprised that especially a lot of people who were big Trump supporters now kind of are? Uh, there, there's this talk about kind of sidelining them or canceling them. And do you think this is helpful or or as Vox says, it just kind of further polarizes and kind of plays into what people think is going on out there? Oh, I'm so surprised, Brian. I'm, I'm <laughs> beside myself with surprise. Um, I've got to learn to never ask you, are you surprised? <laughs> that's not totally fair. I'm I'm surprised by stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. I like things like this when it comes when it comes to the reactions of people on the internet. You're right. I'm not usually surprised. It's usually yeah. like that's a, that's about par for the course. I do think it. There's an interesting sub discussion though because it feels like. Depending on who you ask, cancel culture has a very different definition. Some people say, wow, you're just canceling whoever you disagree with. Others would say, 
no, we're canceling harmful people. Like we're mm-hmm. no longer giving them a voice or a platform. And the truth is, you know, maybe somewhere in the middle, we've probably tackled a couple of other stories where you and I personally felt like ah, canceling that person might be an overreach. And then there have been other kinds of like, nope, I think it's uh, it's high time for us to stop giving that person our money and attention. Um, mm. Now, you might make the case that that's just called, you know, a decision and not canceling. Like may- mm-hmm. maybe there's a, a case to be made that like cancel culture is more ruthless than just simply choosing to ignore, you know, certain prominent figures. I, th- I, I, uh, I'd be willing to engage in that conversation, but I think like the other article here over at, at Christian headlines where Harvard students want degrees stripped from Trump supporters. Um, that to me is problematic for a number of reasons now again it's a headline so the actual nuance of the article is a little different than what michael faust has here with the headline over christian christian headlines ironically but i think (laughs) i think trump is a really fascinating case study because with with some of the restrictions that he's facing and not just because there are restrictions but because he arguably at least for that office was utilizing those platforms more than any other president in history. Um, so to have have those avenues closed off, like what is he going to do now? Like is he going? Yeah. I mean, is there going to be? There's been whispers of like a, a new social media platform or some sort of some sort of webisode or or TV network. Or I mean, there's a lot of whispers right now. It seems, but it it doesn't seem likely that we're just not going to hear from him. Like that to me seems obvious i think a safe bet a safe bet yes but what that actually looks like though is is anyone's mm-hmm. guess and so if you're of the of the camp that like oh no we need, need, need to cancel him at every turn like that seems almost impossible but uh, i don't know it'll be really curious to see what happens in the next six to 12 months with him yeah this harvard uh, story that you were referencing i think is really problematic uh the students have launched a petition urging the university's administration to revoke the degrees of kaylee McEnany, ted cruz and other republicans who oppose the certification of electors for president-elect joe biden you can go through and read it we've got up at our uh, at our facebook page where kind of their reasoning behind it i think that's a, a dangerous precedent but i do think the interesting one for me uh, is Mike Lindell through uh, my pillow? He's now gotten pulled from Bed Bath and Beyond and some other places. And where some people were like, "Hey, you need to um, boycott the places that haven't pulled him." Uh, I think of Franklin Graham at Samaritan's Purse. There's a Christian organization saying you should stop supporting Samaritan's Purse because of Franklin Graham and the things he said around the election and after. And then President Trump and others also. Uh, sidelining them. I guess I would I would end with this. And do you think it's um, uh, do you ever think in those terms like who's the head of, you know, this organization? What do I think about what they believe? And that therefore is going to affect whether I buy their pillows or support their organization or eat at their restaurant or whatever else. Do you tend to tie those things together? Because cards on the table, I tend to not. Uh, but maybe I should. But I tend to not think through my purchases in that way. <laughs> I appreciate you admitting that you're like I don't I do. think through my purchases at all. Everyone gets to have my it's money. True, e- equal opportunity. No, I, I think it happens. <laughs> on, I think it happens on both sides. To be honest, I mean, there's certainly been yeah. things like what's a good example? There have been things that authorities at Starbucks have said, and mm-hmm. Christians mm-hmm. have come out and said, "Well, we need to stop buying. We need to stop buying Starbucks." I remember even when I was a kid, you know, hearing reasons why we shouldn't be supporting Red Lobster. So I don't, I don't think it's a new argument. I think it does go both ways. Something like Samaritan's Purse is extra tricky because Samaritan's Purse as an organization 
has legitimately done some tremendous work. Right. I do right. find a lot of what Franklin Graham says as problematic and maybe mm-hmm. even more than just problematic at times. But I, I do. I have a hard time personally getting there saying like, oh, yeah, with the whole organization needs to be canceled. Now, there have been people that have called for his resignation and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that that, again, just because it happens on both sides doesn't necessarily mean that I'm in favor. But I also am a big believer that you, we do more than just vote every two to four years. Like we vote with our wallets. Mm-hmm. We vote what mm-hmm. we choose to support or not support, where we choose to spend our money. Um, that is that is that's part of what we're afforded here in the United States of America is like, I, I can choose not to support you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but it obviously all of that gets amplified, amplified when you talk about like internet mob mentality and sometimes how quickly those things can turn. So all that to say, that's a non-answer. No, it's and good. go ahead, take it away. Yeah, no, I, I tend to not think through things. I, first of all, I want to hear the red lobster story sometime. I don't remember, remember not being told not to buy from red lobster, but you do remember through the years, Starbucks or Disney or this or that. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting because I do think you set it up correctly. What actually the way to quote unquote cancel people or to make your voice heard is to not buy from them. Uh, and so I, I do think that it's interesting when you start thinking about some of these uh, post Trump, where are people uh, kind of zeroing in on? And uh, do you think it's legitimate or not? Not legitimate, but do you think uh, do you think it's right or not? You could hit us up on our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Carrie Latticer, the community pastor at Community Christian Church, as well as the founder of New Ground Network. Carrie's going to join us for two segments next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this snowy Tuesday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, we are thrilled to be joined, uh, not just for one, but for two segments by the community pastor of Community Christian Church, that being Carrie Latticer. Carrie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you guys. Oh, it is our pleasure. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, however you'd like. Oh, sure. Uh, I noticed you guys mentioned I'm pastor at Community Christian Church and founder of New Ground Network. And then in my life, I play a lot of other roles like daughter and mom and wife and sister and friend and food, specifically French fry enthusiast. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Not just French fry consumer, but French fry enthusiast. I appreciate well, that. Well, COVID has done that to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we're going to circle back to the COVID stuff because you're relatively new to community staff. And so you've transitioned from across the country during COVID, which I'm super fascinated about. I want to hear more about New Ground Network. But what I, what I kind of want to start off asking you about, because it's, it's a passion area that I know that you and I both care a lot about, is... What's it like discerning your call as, as a woman in ministry? I, I, I mean, I just love to know some of your, your backstory and how you got to where you're at today. Yeah. You know, um, so many people have that like holy Moses mountaintop moment where they were, <laughs> you know, called in middle school or remember at 14 years old. And my journey is so much different that, than that in that it has just slowly unfolded over time. So my call mm. into ministry happened after serving in the marketplace, like being in the business world for years. Mm. And even then I wouldn't have ana- imagined stepping into a role like this, but over time, like got asked to teach, you know, and then I was like, oh, I should probably go to seminary and like learn more about this so I can really do service to God's word. And then um, it has been just like a slow walk towards obedience over time. And especially as a woman, there were not a lot of um, 
leaders who had gone before me that had a similar path. So it it was really interesting to see how God has led me to this season. Yeah. And as we said, you're a new pastor at Community Christian Church uh, here in Naperville. And and Ian said he'd love to, he was going to ask you about it, but let me just ask you, what has that transition been like? Where'd you come from? But really what's that transition been like in the midst of COVID for you? Yes. Well, have you ever like started a dating relationship just over Zoom? You know, like if you could just imagine. <laughs> um, it's been tremendous in so many ways just for my family to make the journey and for us to get settled. And it's such an incredible team. So it's been awesome to um, get to align our hearts to the mission of community and to get to understand how we're living that out these days. But as you can imagine, it's come with challenges, like my predominant way of communicating with um, the staff team and getting to know mm-hmm. sort of core folks in the church has been in that little box on my computer screen. So I mm. see technology has been provision in this season in a lot of ways, um, but it's come with some challenges too. Oh, I'm sure. Now, you, you also mentioned fairly briefly, actually, that you are the, the founder of New Ground Network, which to me, like the, the level of cavalierness, like, oh, I also founded this thing that's also <laughs> incredible. It's, it's mind-blowing to me. I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about what Newground does, what it's about. Why'd you start in the first place? Yeah. Thanks so much for asking that. I love talking about this stuff. Um, really, for years, I did like different coaching and consulting work with organizations. It wasn't something I like started, like had imagined doing or took initiative on, but friends would call and say, Hey, you guys used to do this thing at Willow Creek. Like, tell me about that. And I would mm-hmm. answer their questions. And then at the core, I'm like, This is not your vision or your community or your context. Like, let's get that level of clarity for you and your team. And so I started doing coaching and consulting work. And there are lots of models that you can look at for doing that, but it was really important to me like that this became just a, a kingdom initiative. And so we started New Ground Network as a nonprofit um, rather than a, a business. And so every coaching and consulting contract that my team or I do, we get to give back towards kingdom initiatives and church planting and multiplication. And we're seeing in sort of a post-denominational world churches with a variety of different expressions and different denominations and different affiliations are a part of New Ground Network. And so to me, I just see this thing emerging, I think, years ago when Christian culture was prominent or the majority of people would have said they were Christian. It was easy to define ourselves by our our differences and what distinguished us. But Mm -hmm. I really sense in a post-Christian culture, if we can actually be on the same team and rally around what we share, you know, the commonalities, uh, I think that's an opportunity for just such a move of the kingdom. So it's all sorts of different churches are part of New Ground Network. And I I love the the diversity of our network. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hone in on that phrase you use, post-denominational. A lot of people out there might be going, I have no idea what that means and how it's any different from like a generation ago or whatever. Could you unpack that a little bit, what you mean when you say post-denominational? Well, I mean, the way I see denominations now, the way we see them play out, they tend to be built around certain tenets or um, certain faith traditions. And so a lot of times that's how you can tell, right? The difference between Methodist or Baptist, or we have these sort of core tenets that say this this is your way in. You believe these certain things. Often that means you behave in these certain ways. And that's what it means to be a part of this community. Hmm. And 
as denominations continued to sort of parse off from one another, uh, they were built around what their what their differences were, what distinguished them in that way. And I think we have to move, I mean, my own personal opinion on this is we have to move beyond that and say, you know, if we're really about the mission of God in this world and partnering with him in the redemption and restoration of all things, that means coming together, even despite our differences. In fact, I think right. that's a real opportunity for the future of the church. But yeah, so network would be a different way for us as brothers and sisters to affiliate beyond denominational distinctions. I love that. I have a, a buddy here who has served in a men- as a mentor for probably 10 years. His name is uh, John Armstrong. He sort of coined the phrase missional ecumenism. It sounds like a, a very similar <laughs> idea to what to what you're talking about. How, how do we live ecumenically in in a post-denominational, even post-Christian culture. But I, I also know that you're doing a lot of work specifically with the Vineyard Church, which I think is is brilliant because, you know, community isn't necessarily associated with the Vineyard Church, but we're certainly friendly toward them. What What is some of the work that you've been doing specifically with Vineyard and some of their summits? Yeah. Uh, so the church that I was at before was a Vineyard Church and just really shaped kind of my um, vision for the kingdom and for what church could be and even some of my mm-hmm. theology. And they're in the midst of a lot of um, kind of next generation, like they're doing a passing the baton with their leadership in a lot of ways and doing some reorienting and restructuring. And one of the things that they were really trying to figure out was how to help churches move forward and uh, let go of some of the sacred cows or things that they have held onto that might get in the way of what God wants to do in this next season. So I got to lead uh, this team for the Multiply Vineyard Summit, which is now going to be an all virtual gathering of pastors and church planters and even like dreamers and discerners who are just thinking about that world um, next month, we're going to all be together digitally. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, it's the way this through line, this thread has emerged of just what is God doing now and what's next for the church? What would it look like for us to set aside our assumptions and our expectations and just pursue what God has for us next? So I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to that. And it's been a blast to work with that team. We want to talk to you about a book that came out of yours back in February called Together as a Team, a values-based approach to going further, faster together. And I, I guess I would just start by asking, you know, a lot of us are, are uh, used to, whether it be churches or businesses or whatever, kind of that authoritative top-down leader. You got that one person in charge. Uh, what do you see as kind of the value or even the benefit of what makes it better to kind of go as a team, this kind of team leadership model? Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that. Um, there's a ton that immediately come to mind. And, you know, one of those is empowerment. Like I do coaching work with organizations, ministries, churches, some business organizations as well. And that top down leadership model can present such a bottleneck when it comes to seizing impact, you know, whether your impact is a financial bottom line or whether it's lives transformed when everything in an organization rises and falls on the, you know, approval, the energy, the creativity of one person. And it limits what that organization or team Mm -hmm. or church is capable of. So empowerment and impact, you know, are the two immediately that come to mind. But of course, there are several advantages to a more shared, really, I call it values-based leadership model, where Mm -hmm. we are committed to a set of values, to clarity around our mission and our vision and our strategy. And then people are empowered to run because they know what Mm -hmm. it is we're running after. I think that's great. One of the other things or the phrases that Brian and I have talked a lot about since March is this idea of, of healthy rhythms, and we've talked about rule of life, and we've talked about Sabbath and, and things that, you know, for a lot of people maybe weren't a priority before the pandemic. But I think thinking about leadership and trajectory going forward, I know that's something that you care a lot about, and you're actually doing something 
with our friend Winfield Bevins. I'd love to know one a little bit. What what does that look like? Like, what is this content you're creating? And two, yeah. if you'd be willing to share a little personally, what are, what are some of those weekly rhythms that have been just lifesavers for you in this season? Yes. So I'm partnering with Winfield Bevins. We're actually uh, co-hosting this uh, show podcast (laughs) webinar. (laughs) I'm not quite sure what to call it. Um, This bi-weekly experience together where we are sitting with different guests and unpacking what healthy rhythms to thrive really look like. And Hmm. I mean, this season for all of us has been illuminating in a variety of different ways, whether that's challenges or comforts or conveniences, things that perhaps we held onto prior to this quarantine season. And so we're just talking about what does it look like to actually elevate and prioritize healthy rhythms so that we can thrive. Uh, It's been awesome to have different guests come on. We have an episode actually coming out this week where we're sitting down with a pastor, one of the most influential churches in the country, and talking about his near burnout experience and how Mm. healthy rhythms have helped him not just avoid that, but lead and live from a healthier place. So really excited about that. Awesome. Yeah. And what would be some examples for people out there of healthy rhythms where they're thinking, I'm not really sure whether I am in healthy rhythms or not? What would be some <laughs> examples for people to latch on to? Sure. Uh, we're unpacking lots of different varieties of that um, over the course of the episode. So whether those are spiritual practices that people might hold on to, even pulling from ancient spiritual practices to say, how could these shape our lives today? Uh, one of the big ones for me, and I know Ian asked this, there's probably two I'd talk about. One of them is is fasting as a spiritual practice that's become a part of my rhythm and just how I live. The other one would be something called the daily examine. And Mm -hmm. I would just confess to you guys, like I lived for years in leadership, running as fast as I could, very, very busy. I realized those were even some, um, you know, busyness was like a form of avoidance in some ways, if I'm really (laughs) honest with you. But that daily examine of stopping at the end of the day and inviting God and his presence into my moments and then saying, God, like, help me review my day. What did did I miss today? Is there something I need to go back and own or apologize or repent of? Is there something you wanted me to focus on that I totally missed out on, or, you know, it, it puts my dependence uh, back on him rather than my own strategy or just inertia. And I have been blown away just at how much more I have seen God's presence active and alive in my life and how much um, I have probably stepped all over people in the past and missed it. And now we'll go back and apologize or shore up a conversation or, you know, fix something Mm -hmm. that I should have said differently or those types of things. So that one for me has been one of the most transformational, but we're unpacking all sorts of things like that to say, what does it look like to live from a healthy heart and a healthy soul first and to have healthy rhythms in place such that you can continue to maintain that personally before you're trying to lead other people. I love that. I, I feel like we're in a moment right now too, where a lot of these ancient practices are sort of having a, a cultural moment right now where people are like, did you know that this is a thing that the church <laughs> desert mothers and fathers did thousands of years ago? And it's sort of, it's pretty remarkable to see. I also know that like we've experienced a number of massive cultural shifts just this last year. And I personally, I just want to say, I've been so grateful for a lot of the things that you've been saying and writing and posting online. And, and one of them that I know that you're really passionate about is peacemaking. And there's a big difference between peacemaking and, and peacekeeping. But you write consistently about peacemaking as as a way of discipleship, which I know for a lot of Christians, like their ears kind of perk up like, OK, I've never heard those two words specifically linked together. Could, could you unpack that a little bit and maybe share a bit of what your perspective is on God's mission in the world? 
Yeah. Um, you know, this journey started for me probably 10 or 12 years ago. Um, my husband and I lived in one of the like top 10 most racially divided and diverse cities in America outside of Chicago. And I just became aware of tensions that I had never had to live into before. And so mm-hmm. I, I would say at that point, God just started to open my eyes to things I was not aware of. And as a Christ follower, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, if we're supposed to move towards pain, if we're supposed to be like Jesus and bind up the wounds of the hurt or the brokenhearted, like, what does this look like for me? And fast forward a couple of years later, I got to go um, early on with an organization to Israel, Palestine, mm-hmm. and actually look at and unpack the conflict that we see in the Middle East and really from multiple sides. So we spent time in a refugee camp in Palestine. We um, spent time at many of the holy sites. You know, we met with a commander of the Israeli defense forces. And we wanted to understand like, what is the conflict? What is, what, how does America, how do we as Americans contribute to that? How should we as Christians view this? And so it was like one Mm -hmm. of the top 10 most transformational journeys of my life. And I think has helped shape my understanding of God's mission in this world. And, you know, if we really hold tight to his original intention for creation, And if we know as his followers, we're invited to first redeem and then restore things back to his purposes, then what is our part to play in that? I mean, first with ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. What needs to be restored in right relationship with ourselves and with God? But then beyond that, what is right relationship with my brothers and sisters? Where is there brokenness around me or around the globe that we're invited to help redeem and restore? And so I think discipleship as or peacemaking as discipleship, even right now, um, Mm -hmm. is having its moment. Like how many tense conversations, whether they're related to politics, whether they're related to masks, whether they're related to (laughs) uh, racial tensions, you know, our ability to enter into those and to be bridge builders who, again, I think pull people to the middle from all sides. Um, that, that is the extent to which we're able to partner with God and his mission in this world. So I, last year, I got to go right before the pandemic hit um, to South Africa and to study wow. post-apartheid redemption. What does hope look like on the other side of this? What does restorative justice look like? And those are huge things I'm still wrestling with. I've by no mm-hmm. means figured this out. But our ability to partner with God and bringing shalom to the earth is important. So we've got some work to do personally and yeah. uh, collectively mm-hmm. to figure that out. That's a really good word. So Carrie, as we close two things, first, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you, social media, where they can find New Ground Network. So the important stuff, but then we have to ask you when you first came on, you said you're a French fry enthusiast. So you, I want to ask what's your favorite French fry, fast food restaurant. What's the number one French fry? So first give us the important stuff, the, the, where we can find you, but then we'd like to know your favorite French fry. You know, we give away all sorts of free tools and resources, um, like open source from some of our partners that have created them through New Ground Network. Work. So there's more information about that there. I'm on Twitter. I think it's just at Carrie Ladd because we all know nobody could spell or say that last name. <laughs> uh, and I'd love to be, you know, friends on Facebook or Instagram. I will say I, I have to deviate a little bit from your question, Brian. To say, <laughs> we have perfected the homemade French fry in wow. our house. You have to cut and then soak the potatoes, deep fry them, and there's no fast food place that can compare. Wow. Oh, that's next level. Okay. That's next level. <laughs> that wins. That wins with Carrie. Anyway, thank you. Carrie, Carrie Latticer, community pastor at Community Christian Church, also founder of the New Ground Network. Carrie, this was great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yes. Thank, thank you. you Thrilled to be with you guys. It is our pleasure. And you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us. Over at the Gospel Coalition, uh, author Tim Shorey a couple days ago wrote this, Assume You Are Wrong. I saw that headline. I was like, okay, I'd, I like to assume that I'm wrong. So uh, assume <laughs> you are wrong. Why don't you get us into what Tim wrote here? Before I do, do you like to assume that you're wrong? Is that true? I I tend, I think I actually, what he's going to say here, I think I do pretty well. I tend to assume I'm wrong and ask people, like, help me understand if I'm right about this. But okay, that would make for uh, interesting, interesting talk radio. Like, I'm probably wrong about this, but let me share my opinions. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Tim Shorey, <laughs> assume you are wrong, Gospel Coalition. Here we go. We all tend to turn the debatable into the dogmatic. Wow, that's a great way to start an article. We all tend to turn the debatable into the dogmatic, be it politics, education, options, or whether good Christians should drink alcohol or watch TV or read Harry Potter or cheer for the New England Patriots. You can be sure we have opinions and are sure of them. Herein lies much of our current crisis. We need to learn better how to coexist humbly and teachably. To do this, we need to be more willing to admit that in most disagreements, we may very well be wrong. By, quote, wrong, I don't mean totally wrong. I mean wrong in some way, in opinion, attitude, word choice, emphasis, tone, grasp of the relevant information, or timing. That's a great list. We should Mm -hmm. enter every dispute confident that there will be something for us to learn, something to confess, or something we didn't know as we ought to have known it. That is a great introduction to an article. I'm having a hard time disagreeing with any of it. I think part of what I'm reminded of or one of the conflict norms that we established at community is uh, how do we word it? Fight like you're right. Listen like you're wrong. Like we're not saying Mm. don't have strong opinions and don't fight for them or, you know, to be proactive in uh, asserting them fight like you're right, but also listen like you're wrong. I think that sort of in some ways encapsulates what he says here. I want to read that list again, though. He says by wrong, I don't mean totally wrong. I mean, wrong in opinion, attitude, word choice, emphasis, tone, grasp of the relevant information or timing that last one is so important like yeah you might actually be 100 percent accurate in your assertion here and your timing could still be way off like that's still something Mm -hmm. the very least i think that christians should consider so yeah i like the way that he framed this yeah he goes on to say that i am not all knowing should be more than a statement of the obvious it should be a conscious functioning conviction that humbles me at all times uh Another, it's a really good writer, first of all. Uh, but, but this is something that I don't think we get right. Think about this political season we just went through. Uh, and then you sprinkle in social media and the dynamics there and everybody's constantly making like authoritative categorical statements, right? Like this is true. This is, uh, and like I have to be right and know we're going to talk about this a little bit later. Do pastors again have to speak on everything? But, uh, but here, this ability to say, you know what? Maybe I do need more information, or more importantly, as you said, I'm going to listen, not to beat you down. Like, listen, I'm actually going to listen to hear what you're saying and go, hmm, that's a valid point. Maybe you're right. Maybe I need to think about that more. Take some humility. That unfortunately we often don't have, but but as Tim Shorey is going to continue to point out here, is biblical and super important for us. I wonder why you think it's so rare, because there's there's certain aspects to arguments, and I guess depending on the intensity of the subject matter, we're probably more or less likely to admit that we're wrong. Like if it's well, let's use like an extreme example. Someone's standing on some train tracks and a train is coming. Mm-hmm. The person that observes that is probably not going to be like, well, I could be wrong, but I think you're standing on the tracks and a train is coming. Like you're going to feel 
intense, likely aggressive emotions, and we'll probably try to communicate it accordingly. I do feel like often, especially online, because of so much is missed in how we communicate digitally, especially written, there there can be like a real assuredness of like not only not only am I completely right, but it's urgent that you also understand that I'm right. And so therefore mm-hmm. I'm like closing myself off even more so from in any way assuming a posture of humility or even a willingness to listen because it's so important that you understand and understand right now just how right I am. Uh, I, it feels like a lot of people debate online with like that type of energy. Yeah, like in 140 characters, you're going to know my yes, position right. and why you're wrong, why I'm right. Uh, I do get it. You and I have joked before in marriage sometimes, right? Like you get in a fight with your spouse and uh, like, you know, a couple hours in, you're going, I don't remember what we're fighting about, but I'm going to win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or or it's like, yeah, you know what? She might be right, but I can't let her know that. <laughs> and for right, that, that, right. that kind of seeps down into, I think, a lot of the ways just the discourse. I also think you, you, you said, I wonder why it's it's like this. You know, not to hang too much on cable news or talk radio or whatever else, but what's the point of those things? It is it is to yell and argue and say this is the way things are when you're talking about things where there could be serious debate and talk about things. It's it's constantly like, nope, I'm right. Uh, listen to me. Uh, and anyone who disagrees is not just wrong. They're the enemy. And I, and I think that sort of thing seeps down. Uh, and and it's like, hey, the greatest value we can have is to be right and to be the victor and the winner, right? To be right is to be the winner. And and I do think that there's some, uh, we've lost something uh, culturally in our value of being able to have civil discourse and yeah. uh, not just these one-liners, not just these email forwards or Facebook posts, but civil discourse where I could go, you know what? You make a valid point. Even if I don't agree with you, you make a valid point and we can debate and disagree, put our arms around each other at the end and say, you know, that was actually kind of fun to discuss. Yeah, I want to make sure that I read this paragraph because uh, I don't know if you've read any Soong Chan Ra, but anything mm-hmm. he writes is brilliant. Here's what, uh, what he writes here. He says, uh, Ra suggests each disagreement can be either a battle of messages or a learning conversation in a battle of messages. I aim to prove my point and persuade you that I'm right in a learning conversation. I assume there are important things. I don't know in a battle of messages. We fight over who gets to be right. Raw writes while a learning conversation places a higher value on learning than scoring points and proving yourself. Correct. I, I realize this is just a paragraph of a blog, but I like read that. And like my like my soul wants to cry out like, yes, yes, more of that. I, I don't know what prompted it, but I posted something the other day. I said, don't fight to win the argument, fight to win the relationship. And that simple shift, it maybe sounds cliche. It probably is a little cliche, but like keeping in mind, maybe dunking on this person right now, even if it's not someone that you're close to, like you mentioned a spouse, it could just be someone that you're having a battle with online. But is it possible? I just love that. That juxtaposition, a battle of messages versus a learning conversation. If we could all take a baby step toward learning conversations, like wouldn't that just drastically change yes. the rhetoric that we see online? I would love that. 
Yeah, and that, I'm really glad you read that line from him because that whole idea of learning battle of messages versus learning conversation, that's what we were just trying to say. And he says it so well there. And it's so true, the different perspective you take when you enter into a conversation. Let me read how this uh, blog ends. It said, here's the climate. Here's a climate change we all need. The infusion of humble relational air into every single sphere of life. If each of us, secure in God's justifying grace, dared to assume we might be wrong, much of today's uh, rancorous discourse would come to a swift and powerful end. A really well-written blog there uh, by Tim Shorey. It's up on our Facebook page. You could see it there. Well, coming up next, at the Washington Post over the weekend, they wrote this, five myths about evangelicals. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, five myths about evangelicals. And then we're going to reflect on the one-year anniversary of the death of Kobe Bryant. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I am Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this snowy Tuesday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Well, at the Washington Post, uh, Kristen Dumez, 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 I'm not sure, D-U-M-E-Z. Uh, she's the author of the book that has been like widely read. Uh, can books go viral? If, if a book could go viral, this one's kind of gone viral in the, especially the evangelical world. It's called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Uh, I've no- heard of more people reading that book <laughs> that right now, and I actually have it on my shelf here. I haven't had a chance to read it. Got it for Christmas. Uh, but she is also a professor of history at Calvin University. And they asked her to write at the Washington Post uh, this past week. And it was this. Uh, every week, the Washington Post writes, I believe uh, they have an, a thing called Five Myths About. And it'll be about a different thing. Uh, and this one was Five Myths About Evangelicals, which I find fascinating. The Washington Post is basically saying you hear about evangelicals all the time. Uh, let's talk to somebody who would know about evangelicals and say, what do we know about them? What are we getting wrong? Uh, and so this is five myths. I thought we would work our way through, but let me just uh, read her open. She writes, once commonly referred to as, quote, born again Christians, in contrast to mainline Protestants, such as Presbyterians, Episcopalians and Lutherans, evangelicals have in recent decades become increasingly influential in American religion, culture and politics. Their movement is associated with figures such as Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell Sr. and is particularly strong in the South. It represents a range of communities and beliefs, but myths abound. I'm fascinated to get through this because you and I both pastor evangelical churches. uh, But we know with that word comes some baggage or some assumptions, I should say, some assumptions people make about you. Uh, and here, Christ, Kristen Dumez is going to say, I think some of those assumptions are unfair. So why don't you take the first one? There's five myths here. We'll work our way through them. Well, before I get into them, what would you say some of those assumptions actually are? Like in your own experience, I think people would be curious to know as a pastor, what are some of those myths and or assumptions that you often come come up against? Yep. I think the biggest one is political. So if you're an evangelical, you are you have always voted Republican. And there's reasons people believe that. Right. The numbers suggest. But you are automatically a Republican. Uh, And in the last four years, if you're an evangelical, you're automatically not just a Republican, but you're a Trump supporter. Uh, So I think that's the biggest one that we all get recently. But there's some other ones. You're vehemently anti-abortion. 
you know, that you're kind of in the midst of the culture wars. Like that, I think evangelicals kind of have that. That's what people assume is going on with them. Okay, let me. I want to just read all five real quickly because I think it'll uh, it'll whet your proverbial appetite before mm-hmm. we get into them. So, myth number one: evangelical beliefs come strictly from the Bible. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Myth number two: evangelicalism is traditional Christianity. Oh boy. <laughs> myth number three: all evangelicals are conservative Republicans. Myth number four: opposition to abortion drives evangelical politics. And myth number five: evangelicals betrayed their values for Trump. So there's a lot of what you said in your response there that that is caught up in here. So we probably won't be able to get to all of it. But let me read this first one. Myth number one, evangelical beliefs come strictly from the Bible. The National Association of Evangelicals website says a key tenet of evangelicalism is a belief in the, quote, infallible authority of the Bible. Evangelicals often identify as, quote, Bible-believing Christians, meaning that they believe the Bible is literally true. One uh, BeliefNet article instructs that to be a Bible-believing Christian, you must, quote, believe that all 66 books of the Bible are the word of God and 100% accurate. But evangelical beliefs are often molded by political and cultural allegiances, not just biblical text. Political scientist Michelle Margolis has demonstrated that politics can shape religious choices just as religious belief influences political convictions. That explains why critics of the English Standard Version, a popular evangelical Bible translation, allege that accurate translations were sacrificed to promote conservative views on gender. Similarly, several evangelical theologians have advanced an interpretation of the doctrine of the Trinity that contradicts centuries of Christian orthodoxy in order to promote the subordination of women. Based on their doctrinal commitments, 44% of African-Americans could be categorized as evangelical, but one 2015 survey showed that only 25% identified themselves that way. Increasingly, those who identify as evangelical are aligning not primarily with a theological system, but with a cultural and political identity. That was a mouthful, but like just jam packed with all sorts of insight there. What do you you think of that one? I think it's really important for people to realize that uh, where we're being shaped, like she said, by political and by cultural things versus, you know, uh, always saying, nope, we take everything from the Bible. Like, do we like, you know, I think that 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 becomes very important to go, Okay, let me. Go, you know, figure out if we're actually true. I actually want to read the second one because the last three are the kind of the political ones we talked about. But this one, evangelicalism is traditional Christianity. Uh, Billy Sunday in 1920s evangelists uh, proclaimed this America needs a tidal wave of old time religion. In 1963, when an Episcopal clergyman accused Billy Graham of, quote, putting the church back 50 years, Graham responded, I'm afraid I have failed. I had hoped to put the church back 2000 years, suggesting that evangelical, that's a great line, suggesting (laughs) that evangelicalism was a return to pristine ancient Christianity. As historian uh, Timothy Gloger explains, however, early 20th century evangelicals called their movement, quote, old time religion, even as they pioneered a new consumer oriented faith, frequently sidestepping traditional denominational structures. Uh, Evangelicals have excelled at using modern promotional techniques to deliver their message through celebrity spokespeople and an elaborate Christian media empire. Think of ubiquitous televangelist Joel Osteen. 
prioritizing an individual's personal relationship with God and plain reading of the scriptures, they also created new standards of orthodoxy, uh, including the, quote, inerrancy of the Bible. These innovations were often sold as traditional Christianity, but they developed the faith beyond what even the Reformation innovators could have imagined. So a lot of people Mm -hmm. aren't going to agree with that one, but I wanted to make sure to read that one because that's a... That's a major one. Instead of even, her point is evangelicals say we're going way back to the beginning. And her point is, I wouldn't necessarily say that. So it, a really mm. interesting list. The last three are pretty, as we said, political. Uh, but we're going to put this up on our Facebook page. And I think there will be some debate over them. So go there. Uh, let us know what you think. Five myths about evangelicals written uh, at the Washington Post. Well, coming up next from the Gospel Coalition, expect less and more of your pastor in addressing current events. That discussion is coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day despite the snow or maybe because of the snow. You're having a great day, but we are glad you're choosing to spend some time with us. Ian, we've told people that you're at your house. I'm at my house ever since the pandemic. That's how we've been doing the show. And I'm sitting looking out. And all of a sudden, we were just talking and peripherally a fox ran uh, through my front yard. That was the weirdest thing. I never see a fox. You live in the woods? I was going to say, apparently, uh, you know, a suburban Downers Grove is like, you know, (laughs) apparently quite rural here. So there went the fox. I think think that's good luck or something. To see a fox? I'll take it. I'll take it. Nope. Nope. You said it. All righty. Gospel Coalition, we quoted them earlier. Well, I love the Gospel Coalition for a couple different reasons. They tend to, when you and I talk about pastor-centric things, and you and I are both pastors, they tend to uh, kind of get us get us into those, too, as is the case with this article, a healthy list. So they love to make mm. the list. So uh, Chris Colquitt today wrote at the Gospel Coalition, expect less, and then parenthetically said, he said, and more of your pastor in addressing current events. He says, from pandemic response to racial justice to politics, the last year has produced more than its fair share of public controversies, along with pressure for pastors to address them. Uh, If public figures, including Christian leaders and forums like the Gospel Coalition, are speaking about an issue, isn't it reasonable to expect your pastor to address it as well? And given that so many other people, including Christians, are so wrong, it should would be nice if he would clear everything up. Let me pause there. So this is Chris Colquitt. He's a minister right in our backyard here uh, in Evanston. Uh, Ian, you and I have talked. Uh, we've touched on this before, but you and I are both pastors. This has been a crazy year with no small array of major topics. How do you work through uh, I'm going to speak on this. I'm not. Uh, I'm going to do this on social media. Our church should speak about this from the front. What are for people who've never heard you talk about it? What are some of your filters and how you figure these things out? Well, I mean, first and foremost, my filters come through people like we have Mm -hmm. a a very team centered kind of community centric model at community that I think is to everyone's benefit, even if something isn't happening in the news, like the fact that we, we write collaboratively, we edit collaboratively. You know, multiple people in the room when we're reading first and second drafts, there's obviously there are things in the news that are much more hot button that could be potentially way more 
explosive or divisive, but even to have that kind of team set up for smaller things like, hey, I, w- I don't think I would say that joke that way. Or I, you might be in tricky territory theologically if you if you allude to that, like having those bumpers. And sometimes it's not even like a, before you misspeak. It's like a, hey, I don't find anything wrong at all with what you just read, but I can tell that maybe you're of this generation or this particular wiring or this Myers-Briggs and I'm of this generation with this other wiring and you totally lost me. So nothing's wrong with it, but it's you, you certainly have something in maybe your tone or in your angle or whatever that could potentially lose a bunch of people. So I, I do feel really grateful in the last five years. I've, I've kind of existed in this collaborative communal space where, you know, we've had to run a lot of those things through multiple sets of ears and eyes. And when it comes to social media, I mean, honestly, my, my wife is um, mm-hmm. one of the best I've ever seen. Just if I feel like it might be potentially problematic, like, Hey, is this, would this be helpful? Would this be useful? And, you know, sh- she'll shoot me straight. And, and sometimes, sometimes I don't remember to ask until after the fact, which is unfortunate, you know, because then you, <laughs> then you kind of step in it and you're like, wow, I did not expect this pushback or this outcry. So, yeah, it's it's probably equally an art and a science, to be honest. But do, I, do you have stuff in your life that kind of keeps you on track? Uh, I think you a lot of what you answer. Now, you you serve on a much bigger team than I do. So sometimes I have to search that out. Like, OK, what do you right. guys think of this? Uh, but also my wife uh, is a good one for me to go. Hey, uh, do you think it'd be helpful if the church heard from me on this? Or if I don't tend to post stuff on social media, but if I were going to. You know, is this worth the, uh, you know, the debate or whatever else it might be? She tends to be a, a good, uh, uh, what's the old word? A, a governor, right? That's on a golf cart. Uh, just go, oh, you might want to slow down there <laughs> and uh, and hit the brakes on that one. So uh, Chris Colquitt goes on to say, your pastor is hired by God as his representative, speaking God's words as a herald of the king and caring for Christ's flock as the under shepherd of the good shepherd. That is quite the job description right there. Uh <laughs> This calling is high to be sure, but it's also specific and limited. And that is something to be for which we can be thankful, even when it means uh, that he doesn't offer the perfect words on every major events. And so he's going to go through Colquitt here is Chris Colquitt, uh, five truths to bear in mind as we think about what is it that our pastor, we expect them to speak on and her to not speak on or whatever else it might be. So let's quickly work our way through these five. Why don't you take the first one? All right. First one he writes is your pastor has specific and limited authority. Despite what some congregants and pastors may think, a pastor is not a Christian TED Talk speaker. He occupies a royal office with specific authority and responsibility. When a pastor preaches, he's engaging in a particular kind of speech, which flows from his unique office that both empowers and constrains his speaking, I would add, or her speaking. Uh, If you are a member of a congregation, your pastor has the right and duty to implore you to show up for public worship each week, listen to him speak and heed what he says. Uh, I'm going to stop right there. I There's already a... I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, there's a particular, I don't know, kind of angle that don't you feel like is sort of... I get what he's, I get what he's getting after here. Um, uh, but I do wonder if, particularly in the context of this larger conversation, yeah, he has the right and duty to implore you to show up for public worship every week, listen to him speak and heed what he says. Ah, well, let me let me put it on you for a second. Like, is, is that how you would describe your job description or the responsibility of the church to your preaching? You know, I, I totally get where he's coming from, but there's a lot of what he said that I, how I wouldn't 
necessarily described by job descriptions, very lofty. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and listen to me speak and heed what I say. I, I get it. There, I guess I don't think of myself as that authoritative. <laughs> like, uh, uh, hey, let me make sure you're here. And the sermon is is the thing that we need to just uh, zero in on. Uh, definitely has a lofty view of the pastorate. That is for sure. Um I would say it maybe more that, than more than just lofty. I feel like uh, to some degree, I'm sorry, I don't mean to bogart this conversation. Go for it. Maybe may, may unhelpful to be to to so elevate the disseminating of information in the format of preaching at what seems like the the detriment of like formation and discipleship discussions. I feel like in a lot of ways, this is part of what sets up so many pastors for disaster. Like the the example he gives here, like an attorney hired by a client to speak on their behalf. Your pastor does not speak for himself. This should give both a pastor and his church's members a healthy sense of caution in considering whether, how, and when he should speak to current events. Uh, that's tricky, too. And to, to say, like, hey, your responsibility, church, is to just do what he says. I mean, there are plenty of circumstances, stories that you and I have covered even where, like, hmm. That church might have done better to not heed what that pastor said. Like there was maybe a need for higher accountability and scrutinizing of what that person said from a pulpit before, you know, it was then slapped online and sent to the masses. I don't know. That's that's not really the point of this article, but uh, just I need to get that off my chest. I think it's a valid critique. I think it's it's fun to wrestle with articles as we go through them. I just read yeah. the other five uh, that he says your pastor's specific and limited message. Number three, your pastor has a specific and limited purpose, uh, has a specific and limited flock. Uh, that's an interesting one. The koozie speaking to uh, and a specific and limited capacity. Uh, so we're going to put this up on our Facebook page. As you can see, we're wrestling with this going. Ah, I don't not sure uh, that I agree with all of it, but that's what makes these articles fun. So go up to our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And uh, let us know what you think about uh, what should the expectation be on your pastor, whether you're a pastor or a congregant, uh, in addressing current events. That's from the Gospel Coalition. Well, coming up next, it's been a year, amazingly, since the tragic death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and seven others on that helicopter out in California. Uh, and just thought we'd take a couple minutes to reflect upon that and talk about the uh, that tragedy and how do you process a tragedy like that in your own life that's coming up next here on the common good am 1160 hope for your life hey everybody welcome back to the common good here on am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins i'm brian Fromm. glad to have you with us today uh, i hope you're having a great day enjoying the snow on this tuesday afternoon Ian, it's been such a crazy year. So much has happened in this year that in some ways, when I woke up this morning and watched the Today Show and they were talking about it being the one year anniversary uh, of basketball superstar Kobe Bryant, former superstar. Uh, he was retired when he passed away. Uh, Kobe Bryant, his daughter, Gianna, uh, and seven others who were tragically killed in a uh, helicopter accident out in California on their way to a basketball tournament. Uh, when I first heard that it had been a year, I had like that simultaneous thought of, wow, that was a year ago already. And that's only been a year. <laughs> like it's been such yeah. a long year right now. Uh, but man, there, it's really been a lot in this year. And as I, I, it made me think back to when Kobe Bryant passed away and, and thinking to myself, like, I remember first hearing and just being like, like shook to the core because he's the same age as me, his daughter. Mm -hmm. 
and then watching all the tributes and, and, and watching it today kind of brought some of that back up. Like, oh, yeah, that is uh, tragic. I, I, as you reflect upon it, and I know there's been, you know, hundreds of thousands of tragedies since then, but that one really struck a chord with me and a lot of people. As you reflect on a tragedy like that a year later, what are, what are some of the things that come to mind for you? You know, I, I think a lot about how many times this last year people referenced his passing as sort of like the marker of what would become a really terrible, difficult year. Um, That's right. Which is strange. I had the same same kind of sensation like, wow, already? And wow, I I can't believe it's been that long. You know, like it's, it's a very odd, and I'm, I'm sure that's how a lot of things feel, especially after that, that first year. But I, re- I remember there being, before we knew the kind of year we were going to have, you know, there was this, the, this kind of outpouring and this maybe sounds a little cheesy, but like anytime, especially now when you think of like what, you know, most of our Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds look like to have a near unanimous sort of like outpouring of like love and support and respect, mm-hmm. you know, there was something, if even just for a moment, you're like, Oh, yeah, we we could use more moments like that, like coming together amidst tragedy. I know there are always going to be perspectives and angles where people are like, well, you know, why don't we mourn all of these lives lost right. and the people that we we don't know and you know weren't millionaires and weren't celebrity. Like I I think people have perfectly valid points there too. But there, yeah, there is something to be said about I don't know the unifying grief that a nation or, or in his case maybe even a world. Mm-hmm. feels when there's just a collective like oh that just took the wind out of me you know and i remember feeling that way like oh gosh and i'm not even like that big of a basketball fan so i remember thinking right, like right. gosh i'm if i'm not even like like a diehard nba guy like there's and that have hit me the way that it did gosh i can't even imagine you know and you obviously go right to prayers for the families and the people mm-hmm. affected and, and all of that but yeah definitely surreal especially given the year that followed it yeah, you bring up an interesting point. I read a really poignant kind of blog post right before we got on the air today, uh, written by a guy by the name of Jeff Perlman. And uh, he, it was titled And Others. And it was basically like when these tragedies hit, it'll be the celebrity. Uh, so in this case, it was Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven others. And his point was like, I want to give a little bit of press to the seven others. And and it was just an interesting, it was really poignant. And I learned stuff about the other people who were on that helicopter that I'd never known before. And I was I was grateful to be able to read that. I do, Kobe Bryant has become well known for Mamba mentality and what he stood for. And he's a real interesting, I think one reason people felt like it was such tragedy amongst other things was he was in this real transition in his life of being like this hardcore, everything's about basketball to like he retired and he became like, uh, he won an Oscar and he became just a great right. dad and he became, uh, you know, all of these different things. And it felt like he was moving into or had moved into this next season. Uh, but I did want to hear I want you to hear something Kobe Bryant said in reflecting upon his own career as it was coming to an end uh, in 2015. Listen to these words. How do you want to be remembered? What, what matters to you in this whole discussion of what do you want people to think of? That, um, you know, it's, uh, I've always said that I wanted to be remembered as a player that didn't waste a moment. Welcome to the Kobe Show, take two. Didn't waste a day. Kobe, Kobe, Kobe. And uh, um, I 
felt extremely blessed um, by the God-given talent. But at the same time, I didn't take take it for granted at all. So if I could re be remembered as a person that was born with a lot of talent, but did everything he could to try to overachieve, and you know, lived every day as if he was the 12th guy on the bench, you know, I think that's a very powerful message to have and something that hopefully the players that are now and players that will come later um, choose to embody as well. So, Ian, those become a, a more poignant because we know how of tragically his story ended. But one of the things that's interesting when you listen to Kobe Bryant clips is he had this perspective uh, over and over. I, I was watching stuff this morning where over and over he kind of said, whether it be about basketball or about life, you just don't know how long you have. And he said yeah. that over and over again, not knowing how it was going to end. But even listening to that or hearing that perspective of, uh, of you don't know how long yet you're going to have. But like the last two minutes we have here, why is that such an important perspective? Uh, not just looking back in tragedy, but even kind of in how we live our lives now. I mean, I think it has a lot to do how we think about our own mortality. It is a unique issue in the West in particular. I find that the more that I travel, the more that I, again, you know, for as much as we knock technology and social media, there is a real benefit to be able to connect with people who live in completely different kinds of cultures with completely different worldviews and to hear how other parts of the world think about and deal with death and the frailty of life and all that. There is a, a certain awareness that I think we all would do well to to work hard to maintain because I think, especially, you know, now that you have like teenagers and stuff, Brian, I'm sure that your kids every once in a while give off this sort of like, we're going to live forever mentality. Right. And you're like, you are not going to let, you're going to blink and you're going to wake up and you're going to be as old as I am right now. And because you probably feel that way at times. And I think hundred percent that's often what keeps us from actually making the right priorities or going after the stuff, the dream that God has planted in our heart, because we sort of feel like, ah, I got time. I got time. I got time. And not in any kind of like morbid sense, but sometimes we, we don't, we don't got time. And that's not, you know, that's not always the case. And I think that's a really important thing to, to keep in perspective that, you know, and the writer of Ecclesiastes says that he's he's planted eternity in the hearts of men. Like, I think that we all long for something to outlast us. Um, but that that often takes a real grappling with our own mortality. And it, it's a much smaller point. But the other thing that he, he mentions, at least in that short clip, which I appreciate, he talks about being someone that, you know, has talent. I feel like a lot of times superstars, they will only reiterate like how much hard work it took to get there. And he talks about his hard work, but he also he doesn't shy away from the fact he's like, ah, nah, there was just some <laughs> there's just some God given stuff in there that I just had. Um, right. And I'm grateful for that. Like, that's a posture of gratitude. Like, yeah, you're just you worked really hard, but you also are just really you're just really good at this one thing. And uh, I think that's a posture of gratitude is is equally as important as we kind of navigate, you know, this weird journey of life. Absolutely. That was well put. And again, a year later, kind of brings up back some of the same thoughts and the same memories. And I remember right after Kobe Bryant died and it was tragically his 13 year old daughter being on the air, on the helicopter, everyone said, men, hug your kids, uh, value life. And, and it's just a reminder those things are still true. <laughs> hug your kids, value life. And uh, and you don't know how many days you have. And so I wanted to reflect on that. I, that struck me 
today, and I, I'm sure it has struck other people out there. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show uh, by reflecting on a very uh, timely Bible passage coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Well, some of you are going, hey, man, you're almost done with the show, and I don't know what the holidays are today. Well, fret not. We're going to do them right now. Ian Simpkins, our holiday guy. What are the holidays for today? That's right. You're a holiday guy. I don't, I don't feel like I agreed to any of that. I feel like you just you don't want to be holiday just, guy. <laughs> you toss out these titles like Ian, our brain science guy, and people, someone's <laughs> going to hear that and go, "Oh, can I ask you questions about brain science?" And I'm like, "You cannot, because I don't know anything. I don't know." You called me the sports guy. You know, it was that's boys. self-proclaimed. Go back and listen to the show. You <laughs> called yourself the sports guy for like the first eight months of the show. Ian's like the arts guy, and I'm the sports guy. It's different if I'm calling you a title that you gave yourself, don't you think? I suppose. <laughs> but anyway, suppose. holiday guy. What are the holidays? <laughs> oh, boy. I'm going to reference a Gospel Coalition article where you need to be open to the possibility that you are wrong. Okay. A uh, couple of things. Here's one that I actually celebrate ever since I was there. It's Republic Day in India. So that's a big deal. It is okay. Australia Day in Australia. So they just get their own their own day. Okay. That's exciting. Okay. Um, International Customs Day. That's just everywhere, international, I guess. Uh, it's Liberation Day in Uganda, but those are the serious ones. I'm sure people want me to get to uh, to the fun ones. It's National Spouses Day, so hopefully you've already purchased your gift, Brian. Yes, um, of course. Ha- obviously. It's National Green Juice Day. So that sounds disgusting. What? what the, how, do you, why? Why does that sound disgusting? I know, I know I'm going to get this wrong. I'm probably missing an obvious one, but can you think of any good green juices out there? Where you're like, yeah, I want I that green juice. Yeah, I can think of juice. a trillion. Yes. Do you, not, what? Do, you, do you not do smoothies or juices at all? You only do like iced tea and Coke? <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> I, and by, I, mean, I, I mean Coca-Cola, by the way, just so everyone's clear. He's not doing like iced tea. I do, not drink, I do not drink soda anymore. I literally just drink iced tea in my life. <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah. There are some good green juices, Brian. They're they are worth okay. finding out every once in a while. It's National Peanut Brittle Day. I love peanut brittle. Well, there you have the juxtaposition we were looking for all day long. Like, ugh, who can even think of a green juice that would be, oh, I love peanut brittle, though. Yum. Yes, 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 yes. Peanut brittle all day long for Brian Fromm. Okay. <laughs> and last but not least, it is plan for vacation day. So there oh, are today's yes, holidays. please. Oh, man, I cannot <laughs> wait till vacation. Oh, my gosh. Think about how this feels like one of the major things that we've lost in, uh, in the pandemic uh, just obviously health being the first, like we, that, that's always the caveat, but sure. uh, it's not just vacations, but like the ability to think about like vacations, just like, Oh, it'll be nice. Let's just, then you're like, Oh wait, we can't, or, uh, would it even be worth it? So I, I look forward to that day. Uh, speaking, we haven't talked by the way, and then we're going to close the show the way we planned on it. I, we haven't talked. Did you, are you, did you see online, uh, DuPage County, you and I, uh, went to tier one today. Restaurants are coming back open. I'm pretty excited. It feels like we're moving in the right direction here. Yeah. I was thinking of going over to tier one imports to celebrate. Uh, <laughs> <Hey-o>. <laughs> uh, did you hear, by the way, um, the, the cake, the cake shop was so excited. Even the cakes are in tears. So 
Okay, no, no, you should have stopped at tier one because that was that was a quality one. <laughs> oh, is it because your tears are for fears? Is that why? I understand. <laughs> but I'm excited. It feels like we're moving ever. So it's like restaurants are now open for indoor dining at like 25 percent and some other mm-hmm. things change. So, again, slowly moving in the right direction. And uh, that's not a stave. Some of you believe we're moving too slowly, some of you too quickly. But I'd just like to acknowledge There's some movement in a positive direction that I am excited for. So uh, the way that we close the show now, just trying to give you some inspiration, some uh, good news, just a smile on your face. And I thought, listen, what can we as pastors do when it's snowing outside? What every pastor does when it's snowing outside. Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. So I want to read it. And then, and then, Ian, I'm going to, I'm going to let you preach a little bit. You can, uh, you can talk and and we'll bounce this back and forth. You literally told me we were doing this 40 seconds ago, by the way. So I'm going to read a verse and then Ian, you're going to preach on it. That is. You, I, I have faith in you. I know. I know how you are. All right. It says this, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So you hear this quoted all the time, especially uh, us pastors. We think that we're being clever. Like if you're a Sunday morning and it's snowing and you're like, let me start us out of here. But uh, the concept of this verse, super important. Uh, and as it is snowing still outside today, we're surrounded by white snow. Uh, I won't ask you to preach. Maybe just unpack that verse a little bit, a little <laughs> bit of inspiration, especially for those people Ian, in all seriousness who are out there going like, I'm not worth anything or God could never love me. Uh, and this is a, a this what we're reading in this verse is something we see throughout Scripture. Obviously, the the idea of snow on a day like today is it can really help us. Uh, but what would you say from this verse specifically to those people who feel that way about their relationship with God? Well, I, I feel like I want to let you go first because you you had a reason for for picking this verse specifically today. Like, is there a, a pastoral was word? Literally, that... It was literally because it's snowing outside. <laughs> Is that, is that how you plan your sermons? Is that is that how it goes? <laughs> a little bit. No, I did choose it. It, it does. I was out snowing, uh, out snowing, out shoveling the snow today, uh, this morning. And this verse did come to mind. And, and that's always a good thing. When, when scripture kind of comes to mind for you, when you weren't sitting and reading. And just this idea uh, that it's this picture here in Isaiah that... Uh, you know what, our, our, our sins, it, that the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, um, that, that our sins are, are as white as snow. There's other spots in Scripture that say our sins are as far as the east is from the west, that uh, that uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I myself, but I also know many people, whether it be in my church or friends, uh, who live with this sense of guilt and shame that can be debilitating. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and there's something about um, this idea of cleansing white as snow as far as the east is from the west that I feel like is so important for us to grasp, but so difficult to grasp. So many of us have just a difficult time embracing this, but instead kind of live in this guilt and shame from from things from our past or our present that I do think that this is a super important uh, concept and something that I, you know, if people leave kind of grasping this, I think, uh, you know, then then we've done them a service today. Yeah, I think that's a good word, man. I think that there's there's probably other aspects to remember about the context of what Isaiah was saying to the people of God. You know, when you think about prophetic literature in particular, a lot of what 
really had them riled up was the the ignoring of justice, the ignoring of uh, repentance, the ignoring of contrition. You know, like this is this is part of what it's interesting. I think it's easy to to soften Isaiah at times because he's he's you know he's certainly likely the most quoted uh, prophetic book in the old Testament. So some of the other, some of the other prophetic books you know, like are easier, easier for us to sort of be like, ah, oh, that's, that's just so dark and gloomy. But uh, Isaiah does say some pretty intense things about like, Hey, this is, I mean, the, the passage talks about like, come now, let us, let us reason together. You know, like he's, it's an invitation. He's saying like, all right, come over here, come over here. Let's, let's, um, let's hash this out. Like, mm-hmm. Your sins are like scarlet. It's almost like he's saying, like, we can agree with this, though, right? Like, there's a fracturing that's happened here. Um, I'm the only one who can make them white as snow. Like, there's a mm-hmm. partnership type of language even in Isaiah's prophetic word here that says, like, you meet with God and see see if you don't at least agree on the fact that, like, yeah, I've probably contributed to some toxicity in the world. Like, part of that cleansing white as snow comes from a willingness to recognize, yeah, I, I've contributed to this in some way. And I think that's an important thing to re- to keep in mind, I guess, when we're talking about it. It's like, it's not just this accidental passive. There is a, a certain recognition. I think it's part of why Jesus in the Beatitudes talks about, you know, there's a blessedness that comes with being poor in spirit, like recognizing like, yeah, I can't clean this one up on my own. Like this one's, this is too big a debt, too big an error. Like I can't piece this back together on my own. I think that's part of what prophetic literature is pointing us towards. It's not just like, Hey, this wonderful, beautiful thing is true. It's also saying, like, yeah, there's a a role that we all play in that, and uh, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's that's probably important for us to keep in mind. That's a good word, and I knew you'd preach for us. There you go. <laughs> so that's a good word, and hopefully that as we end our show, uh, and as you're out shoveling or looking at the snow, that that can cause you some encouragement. Uh, we are glad that you joined us today. Please join us tomorrow again from four until six. Until then. Uh, We are glad that you are with us and hope you have a great night. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.